Our second reading comes from Titus chapter 2, starting at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Uh, good morning and welcome to church. It's great to be with you this morning. It's an absolute privilege um, for me to be able to share the Word of God with you this morning. I think I know pretty much everyone here, but if you don't know me, my name is Isaac and I'm one of the youth pastors here. Thanks, Sam. I got a bit of a wave from the back. Um, my hope and my prayer is that in the next 20 minutes or so, uh, our love and our affection for Jesus will grow and um, in response, our lives will be different. Now, um, we are traveling through the book of Titus as a church family, and we can just keep that passage on the screen um, as we go through it. Now, Titus is a book written by Paul to Titus, um, and Titus is a friend of Paul's and a Christian missionary. And Paul is sending Titus to a small island in the Mediterranean called Crete. Now, we know that the culture of Crete, how the Cretans lived was quite notorious. Crete was rich because they had lots of ports, they were greedy, and the people who lived there were notorious for being liars. And we see this in Titus 1, 11 to 12. Paul says, even one of their own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Now, Paul is quoting there Epimenides, a famous Cretan philosopher. Now, probably not so famous to all of you, but if you're into philosophy, you might know him. Um, and he coined the famous liar paradox when he said that all Cretans are liars, despite being one himself. So what Paul is imploring Titus to do is to present an extremely countercultural, a different gospel, a different message to what the Cretans are used to, and an extremely countercultural, a different way of living to what the Cretans are used to. And I think it's the same in our world today. The message of the gospel is very different from what the world believes, and how Christians should live should also be very different. Um, and we, we're going to see that in today's passage. In a way, um, this passage really sums up much of the book of Titus and actually sums up what it means to be a Christian and what it means to live like a Christian. It tells us of the gospel we should believe. It tells us what our response should be to that gospel. And it tells us what we are looking towards. So as we look through this passage, we will see these three things. And all these things were extremely countercultural in Crete and also countercultural in our world today. We will see that grace has appeared to us. We will see what that should lead to, our response to that grace. And we'll see what we should be looking towards as Christians. So follow along in verse 11 with me. Paul says that the grace of God has appeared, 
that offers salvation to all people. Now, Paul uses this word appeared elsewhere in his letter um, in Timothy to describe the appearance of Christ on earth. God's grace has appeared to us through Jesus. He is the one that is the fountain of God's grace, his unmerited favour to us. Paul goes on to say that the grace of God that has appeared to us through Jesus is for all people. Now, as Christians, we should know that, right? That seems pretty familiar. But to the Cretans, that would have been pretty weird. Um, In Crete and elsewhere in the Roman and Greek world, the gods and goddesses and the myths that they followed differed from town to town, from city to city. They didn't apply to everyone. So Paul is presenting something very, very different here, something that would have been pretty extraordinary to the Cretan ears, that the grace of God offers salvation to all people. Salvation from sin. And as we know, sin in Crete abounded, and it abounds in our world today. The grace of God has appeared through salvation, and it offers salvation for all people. As Christians, that truth is to be our foundation and our cornerstone. That God's grace has appeared through Jesus and gives us salvation even though we don't deserve it. And just like it should be the foundation of our lives, Paul uses that glorious truth as the foundation of a Christian's countercultural behaviour. Knowing the truth of the grace of God that has appeared to us, Paul says that will elicit a life-changing response in us. How we live will be different. How we behave will be different. What we do will be different. What we do not do will be different. What we say will be different. What we do not say will be different. And what we should look towards in life will also be different. In verse 12, have a look, Paul continues, as he has in Titus, of giving instructions on how to live. As the appearance of the grace of God as the foundation, he says that it is that truth, in verse 12, he says, that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, I like how Paul includes in this present age, I think it acts as a reminder um, that you should be doing these things now, not next week, not in eternity, not when you're old and retired and don't have to worry about your career and your family anymore. No, you should be doing these things now, Paul says. And we can group these instructions in verse 12 into two broad categories. Paul is saying that as Christians, we should not do certain things and instead do other things. So what are the two things that we should not do? Ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, ungodliness um, is a really convenient term for Paul to use as it really encapsulates all the things he has said earlier about leaders. Um, For all your sake, I'm not going to redo Rick's sermons about um, from the past few weeks because I do want to go home at some point and I'm sure you guys don't want to fall asleep. Um, But some of the things that Paul said leaders should have included, that was shouldn't do, right? Drunkenness, violence, adultery, dishonesty, selfishness, the list goes on. And I think this word ungodliness encapsulates all those and more. We are to say no to these things. And the second thing Paul says to say no to is worldly passions. 
Now, it's quite interesting that Paul uh, makes a point to include worldly passions as separate to ungodliness. And I think he really just wants to emphasise something that the Cretans really had a problem with. The allure of worldly things in Crete was really strong. And it's really strong in our world today as well. It's not just sex and lust, um, which I think our minds go straight to. It's greediness, a lack of generosity, money. And for all of us, all the worldly passions are different, right? Things in your life that draw your attention away from God, draw your passion away from God, Paul is saying to say no to those things. And for some of it, it is, some of us, it is sex and lust, it's money. Some of, for some of us, it might be buying expensive cars or working on cars. It might be going on international holidays. Every one of us has these issues, the allure of worldly things that draws our passions away from God. And Paul is saying, don't let them. That's what we shouldn't do. And instead, what are we meant to do? We are to be self-controlled, We should exercise control over the impulses that are common to our lives. And we are to be upright. We should observe and contend for what is right. The gospel, justice, mercy, we should contend for what is right. And lastly, we are to live godly lives. And this really encompasses all the other things as well, and the previous two, that we should understand God's word and live as God wants us to live. Live godly lives. And Paul says, we should do these things because of that grace that has appeared to us through Jesus. Before I move on, I just want to point out that in verse 11, it says we are taught to do these things, doesn't it? Or not to do these things by the grace of God. We are taught by that grace. Paul is saying that the source, the foundation, the bedrock for that behavior that we should have is the truth of the gospel that has appeared to us through Jesus. That comes first. Um, And there's something that I find in my life that is true as well. I'm studying law at university, and if I become a solicitor in the state of New South Wales, to be allowed to continue to practice every single year, I have to do a certain amount of hours of what they call CPD, continued professional development. Now, some of you will also be in professions where you have to do that kind of thing over and over. What that is, is every year you have to continually learn and be taught new things, continued teaching over time. Even if you've been a lawyer for 50 years, you still have to be taught every single year. Otherwise, your license will be be cancelled. And I think this confirms what anyone who has been educated, which I'm guessing is everyone in this room, or anyone who works in education, which a lot of people in this room also do, that learning and being taught is an ongoing, continual process, isn't it? And so I can't see why it would be any different here. Being taught to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness by the grace of God is a continuing process for a Christian. And um, as a Christian myself... And I'm sure you guys will understand this. It's sometimes really hard to say no to ungodliness. It's not automatic all the time. But something that I find encouraging is that when I talk to older Christians, um, those closer to being with the Lord who have been Christians for longer than I have, they are generally a lot better than me at saying no to ungodliness. 
They have been matured and taught by Jesus over time and have become better at that. And I really hope that becomes me as I grow up as well. Before we move on to the future hope that we have, look at verse 14 with me. It says, Jesus gave himself up for us so that we would be his and we would be eager to do what is good. Now, we were just chatting about how um, sometimes it's really hard to say no to ungodliness. Well, equally so, it's often really hard to be eager to do what is good. Eager. Um, Every year, except 2020, of course, the year that's like no other, um, the youth group here in Richmond does a Hawkesbury youth mission with all the other youth groups in the Hawkesbury. And what we do, we get together for a weekend, we all camp at a church together on the floor, and the leaders of all the youth groups will organise opportunities to serve for the youth. It might be singing songs in a nursing home, cleaning someone's house, mowing someone's lawn, cleaning up rubbish at Richmond Park, baking for someone. Well, a few years ago, I think it was two years ago, I was sent to a man's property in Currajong. And this man, he wasn't a Christian, he'd been in an accident and couldn't take care of his property anymore. And so myself and three teenage boys were sent there to pick up cow poo and weed for three and a half hours. Um, Now, when I learnt this, I'll be honest with you, I wasn't very eager to do good works in that moment. I would have much rather probably be having a coffee and having probably banana bread with my coffee in the morning rather than picking up cow poo for three and a half hours. I wasn't eager to do good works. But that's the command here, isn't it? Not just to do good works, but to be eager to do good works. Not to begrudge to do good works, but to be eager to do good works. The um, Oxford Dictionary defines eager as this. Very interested and excited by doing something that is going to happen or about something that you want to do. We should not just want to do what is good. We should be very interested and excited to do what is good. I think that's something we can all pray for, as well as me, that the Holy Spirit will work in us so that we are actually eager and excited to do what is good not just because we think it's the right thing to do. The ESV uses the word zealous to describe this, zealous to do what is good. So Paul here in verses 11 and 12, the end of 14, has introduced the truth to the Cretans and to us that the grace of God has appeared through Jesus to give us salvation And it teaches us our response to that grace will be to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness and to be eager to do what is good. That is how Christians should live. But there's something else in the passage that tells us about what the life of a Christian should be marked by, what we should look towards. Look at verse 13 with me. The first few words are a really good descriptor for what it means to be a Christian. Waiting. Waiting. Paul has painted a picture here that in the present age, now, we're in a kind of limbo. Grace has appeared to us. It's given us salvation. But we're not with Jesus yet, are we? That salvation is not fully realised yet. We are to live like we are waiting 
And waiting for what? Paul doesn't leave us hanging. He says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So before we move on, I want to stop here for a minute and really think about what it means to be a people who are waiting. What does that look like to have a life full of waiting? Waiting for the full realisation of our salvation. I got married last year to my beautiful wife, Megan, and um, we were engaged for just under 12 months. And while we were engaged, we were counting down the days. We were waiting and waiting and waiting for that day to come. And what did we do while we were waiting? We prepared for that day. We planned for that day. We saved up money for that day and forward. For people that have been engaged or some people in this room are engaged right now, I'm sure you understand that period of waiting, of preparation, of excitement, of gravity about what you're about to do. Well, as Christians, what we look forward to is described in Revelation 19 as the wedding of the Lamb. We will partake in the greatest wedding feast ever seen. And that's what we wait for. And we should be really excited about that. We should understand the gravity of that, and we need to prepare for that. And when you are waiting for something that massive that's coming, you don't invest in what you have now, do you? Because that'll fade. When I was engaged, I didn't invest in my life as a single person because I knew that wasn't going to be around for much longer. No, I invested in my marriage that was coming because I was waiting for that. And as Christians, we are waiting for this wedding of the Lamb. And so we don't want to invest in the world and the passions and riches of the world. We want to store up our riches in heaven. We wait. As Christians, our life is marked by waiting and looking forward to that day. And that shouldn't be boring, although life now can be hard, it should be really exciting. Paul describes this life marked by waiting elsewhere, and he puts it very eloquently in his second letter to the church in Corinth. He says this, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. While we wait, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, not on the things in this world, not on the worldly passions, as Paul describes it here, but on the things that are unseen, on God on that great wedding that is coming. In his letter to the Romans, Paul puts it like this in probably my favourite passage of the Bible. Romans 8, 18 to 22 says this. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope 
that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We wait eagerly for that day. Paul says here in Romans 8 that the groaning of sin and trouble in this present life now are birth pangs, meaning that this broken world now is breaking open to still give way to something that we're waiting for and actually still to give way to someone who's coming. And although we wait now, we have a promise that he is coming soon. A Christian's life is based on us waiting, waiting for the blessed hope when Jesus will appear again to purify us. And that's what we should look towards. In the whole of Titus and in this passage, we see the struggle with sin that we have and that the Cretans have. Although grace has appeared and salvation has begun, we're still not with Jesus yet. So we wait. And Paul says here in Titus that as we wait, the grace of God that has appeared to us teaches us to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness. And we know that as we wait, we are Jesus's and we are eager, zealous, excited to do what is good. In this present age, now. To finish, there is an instruction for Titus and for leaders here in verse 15. Paul turns to remind Titus of his duty and authority. He is to teach what has become, come before this in Titus. He is to encourage. He is to rebuke. Educate, exhort, and correct. That's what leaders should be doing. And we should actually be doing to each other. We should be taught. We should learn. We should be encouraged and urged to live a godly life. And we should re be rebuked when we're not living up to that. And what I think it's really easy to forget, it's really easy to just place the onus of all this on the leaders, is that as Christians under leaders, we've got to be ready to be encouraged. We've got to be willing to be rebuked. And we've got to be excited about continually being taught. And that means we don't know everything. And what I find in my life is that as I learn more, I've been at university for four years now. As I learn more, I realize I know less. We've got to continually be taught and ready to be taught and ready to be rebuked and ready to be encouraged and not be defensive when that happens. And I think we're not used to that kind of humbleness in our culture. That someone else might actually have something good to say and helpful to say for our lives. We're not used to that kind of humbleness. So we need to get better at that. Paul lays out the foundation for godliness in this passage. It's the grace of God that has appeared to us in Jesus that offers salvation for all people. It is that grace that leads and teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and instead live godly and upright lives where we are eager to do what is good. And while we do all of that, Paul says we are to wait. Wait, 
in this present age waits for the glory that is to come when Jesus comes again. Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for sending Jesus. We thank you for giving us a grace, even though we didn't deserve it, Lord. And thank you that that grace leads to salvation for all people. Lord, teach us to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness. Help us get better at being eager to do what is good. And help us to wait patiently. Remind us that as we wait, we don't invest in the now, we prepare and invest in what's coming. Help us to teach, encourage and rebuke and be ready to be taught, encouraged and rebuked. And as we wait, Lord, give us the audacious belief that the eternal weight of what is coming is more than enough to render our current afflictions light and momentary. Even so, come Lord Jesus and please do make it soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.